For so many of us, Halloween is a fun and joyful time of year, and despite it being synonymous with horror, its scares are often playful and nothing to take too seriously. However, tragically, there are occurrences where Halloween becomes a truly dark and evil time, with many people going missing or losing their lives on a day intended to be a light-hearted celebration. In today's part two of Halloween-themed special episodes of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring two cases of unsolved Halloween crimes. Stephen Damon. Stephen Craig Damon was born on December 15th, 1952, to his proud parents Jerry and Marilyn. While he was born in Michigan, the couple relocated to Long Island, New York, where Jerry was stationed as part of his career in the Air Force. Stephen was just two years old at this time. On October 31st, 1955, Halloween, Marilyn went to the local supermarket with her two children in tow, Stephen and his seven-month-old sister, Pamela, who was in a pram. They were only a block and a half from their home. Although it seems an extremely absurd thing to do now, back then it was a socially acceptable thing for a busy mother to leave her children outside the store while she headed inside for some brief errands. In this instance, Marilyn left her two children at the door and headed in for a loaf of bread. When she emerged just 10 minutes later, the pair were gone. Luckily, Pam was found quickly in her pram by a family friend who brought her back to her frantic mother, but two-year-old Stephen was nowhere to be found. The police were quickly alerted and a large manhunt was soon underway, with even the military taking part. 5,000 volunteers helped to search for the missing boy, but no sign of him was ever found. Then, Jerry and Marilyn began to receive ransom letters. The first asked for $3,000 for Stephen's safe return. The next asked for 10,000, and the final one asked for 14,000. While the distraught couple attempted to comply with their son's abductor, it was soon found that the letters were a hoax and were written by a student at Queens College in New York City. The student had nothing to do with the abduction and was simply an opportunist. For Marilyn and Jerry, hopes of being reunited with their beloved son were suddenly dashed. At one time, Philadelphia's famous John Doe, the boy in the box, was thought to be possibly the missing child. Both were blonde and blue-eyed with the same scars, but John Doe, who was found in 1957, didn't have the same healed arm fracture that Stephen did. They also didn't have the same footprints. In 2003, DNA conclusively proved that John Doe was not Stephen Damon. Theories relating to Stephen's case are very limited, considering how little evidence was found at the scene. There were no witnesses, no forensics, nothing. Some online sleuths have suggested that perhaps he was kidnapped to be raised by another family, but if this was the case, why would they not take Pam as well? 
It's been speculated that maybe the abductor became overwhelmed trying to wrangle a boisterous toddler as well as the pram, and decided to leave Pam because she wouldn't remember anything or be able to identify them in any way. It has also been postulated that perhaps Stephen attempted to take the stroller for a walk, but was either lured away or got bored and wandered off. He could have been in an accident or become lost. Others, however, have disputed this, given the clunky nature of 1950s prams and the rather high height of the bar used to push them. Another detail of interest is the healed arm fracture that Stephen had. Many armchair detectives have wondered if this was an accident or whether it was physical abuse. This has led to the idea that perhaps Marilyn was involved with her son's disappearance. A video on YouTube has been closely linked with Stephen's case, in which an elderly woman claims that she's the Dammon's former neighbor and claims that Marilyn was abusive towards her son. She also alleged that she had witnessed the physical abuse and had reported it. She added that she suspected the body had been buried beneath a walkway that was being constructed at the time. However, physical evidence is of course lacking and the video includes no proof of the elderly woman's connections with the Dammon family. So all of this is alleged and should be taken with a pinch of salt. Many online sleuths don't put much stock in this video at all. It's unknown if the authorities are aware of this video and whether or not they fully investigated it. Stephen's case took another turn in 2009 when a man named John Barnes came forward claiming that he might be the missing boy. John, a 54-year-old man from Michigan, had the same facial scar and calf mole as Stephen. He claimed that he never fit in with his family and that he didn't look anything like his parents, but this was heavily disputed by his sister, who noted that everyone said he looked much like his father. John added that Marilyn looked familiar to him when he saw a picture of her from the 1950s. According to John, his curiosity was piqued when his mother, who was dying of lung cancer, requested that he come and visit her alone. He obliged, and although she never told him point blank, he became convinced that she was trying to tell him that she was not his biological mother. John said his mother was too full of drugs to really say it, but he was sure that's what she was attempting to communicate. He became all the more certain when he researched missing children and stumbled across Stephen's information. While John's father and sister were stunned that he thought he wasn't related to the family, he remained confident. He met with Pam, now an adult with children herself, who noted that she didn't think he was her brother, but the two did become close friends regardless. That same year, a DNA test was carried out by the FBI. John was found to not be the missing Stephen Dammon, leaving the family in limbo once more. Updates on Stephen's case are few and far between. After his disappearance, Marilyn and Jerry Dammon moved to Iowa before divorcing in 1957. Jerry continues to live there, where he remarried and had two more sons, while Marilyn now lives in Missouri. Jerry has said that he hopes one day he'll find out what happened to Stephen on that Halloween of 1955, but for now, his case remains unsolved. Kyam Weiss. Kyam Weiss was 15 years old in 1986. An intelligent and studious young boy, Kyam had spent the last two and a half years of his life at the Torah High School in Long Beach, New York. 
This private school was designed specifically for Jewish boys and emphasized the religious and ethical principles of Orthodox Judaism. By all accounts, he was a popular and well-liked boy with no known enemies, which makes his murder on Halloween 1986 all the more shocking. On the morning of November 1st, Detective Don Daly was called to the school to investigate when Kaim Weiss was found dead in his dorm room. The 15-year-old had received a blow to the back of his head while he slept with what was at first an unknown weapon, although later reports noted that the small cuts on his head could indicate that a hatchet-like object was used. He had been executed in his sleep, and according to the evidence in the room, had been moved onto the floor before being moved to another spot on the floor in the room. Despite it being cold out, Kaim's window was open. These two factors have often led to the theory that whoever killed Kaim was familiar with the traditions of his religion, as his body had been moved to its lowest and coolest point, and the window had been opened to allow his spirit out. There was no evidence of robbery present in Kaim's room, nor were there any signs of a struggle. As the young boy lived on the third floor, it is thought to be impossible for the intruder to have entered or escaped through the window without a ladder, which would have likely been spotted by other students. One of the pupils of the school also noted that the perpetrator would have had to have maneuvered through several common rooms and hallways, past other students and teachers, to get to Kaim's dorm. For many online sleuths, this has indicated that the young boy's slaying had to have been carried out by someone familiar with the building and who could go by unnoticed. After Kaim's demise, a memorial candle was placed in his room before it was sealed up. Two days later, another candle appeared, but oddly, when asked, nobody came forward to take responsibility for placing it there. Although this is thought to have been carried out by a forgetful and absent-minded rabbi, it's still a strange detail mentioned in most articles pertaining to the young boy's case. Due to the Jewish Sabbath that was ongoing, Detective Don Daly couldn't immediately interview any of the students and teachers of the school. When he was finally able to, however, there was some reluctance by the school's populace to respond. This was thought to have been because of religious restrictions that meant they could not come forward without concrete evidence or another eyewitness backing up their claims. While this must have been unfathomably frustrating for the local law enforcement investigating the case, there was not much that could be done about it. While little progress was made on this front, Don did manage to piece together the last few hours of Kaim's life. On Halloween night, the 15-year-old left class with his friends to attend services. He returned to his dorm after. Notably, Kaim was one of two boys who did not have to share his room. While most pupils shared with one or two other people, Kaim was an exception to this. It is unknown what exactly made a pupil eligible for this perk. Several hours after the young boy returned to his room on October 31st, he was seen by his classmates reading in the hallway. This was normal because students did not leave their lights on in their room during the Sabbath. Kaim was last seen alive at around 1am that night. No students reported any suspicious or abnormal activity. While one boy did observe Kaim's dorm room quickly opening and closing at one point during the night, he assumed that it was just his roommates, unaware that Kaim lived in the room alone. In total, around 40 students and rabbis were administered polygraph tests, but this did not help to propel the investigation forward. 
as we've mentioned many times, polygraph tests are famously unreliable and rarely do anything to benefit an investigation. Another witness, a jogger, had seen a student of the school on the boardwalk at around 7am on the morning of November 1st and noted that the young boy looked out of place, but this student has never been identified and it's unknown if he has any relevance to the case at all. The list of suspects in Kaim's case was very short. With so little to go on, police struggled to find answers and had very limited evidence which they could use to progress in the investigation. One suspect was a former janitor of the school who Kaim was thought to have had a run-in with, while another was a mentally ill man who had attacked several senior citizens in their homes near the school that year. However, both of these individuals were swiftly ruled out. In 2013, the 15-year-old's case was reopened and over 100 former students were interviewed. Then in 2015, police announced their belief that a student or faculty member had been the one to commit the crime. Although earlier theories speculated that Kaim had been the subject of a hate crime, this idea was soon dismissed because he had clearly been so specifically targeted. In November of 2017, Kaim's father, Anton, was interviewed by a news station and recalled several odd incidents during the lead up to Kaim's death. In July of 1986, just months before Kaim's death, he called his father from summer camp and asked if he could come home. Anton reported that his son was crying at the time and seemed deeply troubled, but he was away on holiday in Florida at the time and couldn't come to collect Kaim. When he stopped by at the camp on his way home, he reported that the 15-year-old seemed fine and it appeared like everything was okay, so he thought nothing more of it. Then, in August, while Kaim was away visiting his grandparents in Europe, his principal, Rabbi Avram Cooper, called Anton multiple different times, asking when his son would be home. On another occasion, the rabbi asked Anton to bring his son by his home so they could talk alone. After the 10-minute meeting, Kaim returned to his father, but refused to tell him what had been discussed. As a result of these details, Anton Weiss believes that Rabbi Cooper has some information on Kaim's murder that he has not disclosed. Many online sleuths suspect his involvement with the murder, especially since it seems obvious that the 15-year-old was not only targeted, but that his death was at the hands of someone on the inside of the school. This line of thought was amplified when the Weiss family took Torah High School to court for failing to keep Kaim safe. This court case came about when it was discovered that there was no dorm counselor assigned that night and that the lock on the dorm building's back door had been broken and never replaced. During this, Rabbi Cooper reportedly told Anton that he should reflect on any bad deeds he might have done as a way of considering why bad fortune had come upon his family. In recent years, a former student has come forward claiming that a rabbi at the school had physically abused him subjecting him to frequent, violent beatings. He alleged that Rabbi Cooper knew of this, but did nothing to stop it. This abuse occurred around a decade before Kaim's murder. The student was 14 at the time and lasted only around a year in the school before leaving. It's also noted that another student hanged himself in the showers several years before Kaim's death, although he is believed to have suffered from severe depression. It's unknown if this student had any connection to the abuse allegations or whether these allegations were thoroughly investigated. As it stands today, despite the efforts of local law enforcement, Kaim's brutal murder continues to go 
unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.